When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We can find instant satisfaction in almost anything these days. Sleepy? Instant coffee. Need to sell your car fast? Car sales? Instant offer. That's right. Sell your car the instant way. And get it done with Australia's most trusted site for cars. On 882 6BR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories, brought to you by Bower and O'Dave, doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. Uh, my guest in this uh, episode uh, is currently an Australian uh, academic, uh, certainly started out in her professional life as one, then uh, took uh, quite a detour into the world of politics. Uh, she served uh, at both state and federal level, uh, and she was uh, also... Uh, Australia's first ever female Premier. Uh, she's back in the world of academia uh, in the School of Psychology, where I think uh, her professional life really began. So it's with great pleasure I say hello and welcome to Dr Carmen Lawrence. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for coming in. Pleasure. Uh, firstly, um, we've just had a, a federal election. Can I ask you for your, for your thoughts on that? Well, I'm very sad, obviously, um, because I thought that this was an opportunity to remedy some of the problems we're confronting as a community. I've been interested for some time in two big issues. One is growing inequality, which is a force that drives communities apart and is quite toxic, you know, wherever you look at it. And Australia was heading in the wrong direction, still is. And I thought that, you know, quite apart from my own political past, that Labor was offering some opportunities to, Mm. to bridge those gaps, to make the inequality in Australia less toxic and to create a greater sense of unity. Unfortunately, the way the the election's gone, and perhaps the way the Labor Party sold its message um, made that uh, unlikely, and I suspect we're in for a you know, growing divide. Yeah. The other thing that I feel very deeply about, I'm now President of the Conservation Council in Western Australia, is the state of our environment, and that is really dire, and quite apart from one's political persuasion, uh, I think action needs to be taken. I mean, it's clear to me that real conservatives value the environment, and a lot of the environmental movement's early days was supported by people who would now be considered members of the Liberal and Coalition family. Um, and we seem to have lost them along the way. And I think one of the things we have to do is pull them back into the group of people who regard environmental problems as real and needing attention. Mm. You mentioned they're selling the message. Is that where it went wrong? Was it the message itself or was it the selling of it, do you think? Look, I, I, think down? I think the latter, the way they constructed the, the public dialogue. I mean, in fairness, they put the message out there about the specific policies well ahead of the election. Some will say that the target was too big and there were too many losers, but I think the reality is that that isn't so. Uh, but you have to anticipate what your political opponents are going to say about you, the worst that they'll say about you, and be ready to come back uh, with a riposte that in a sense, either neutralises or, you know, effectively kills that argument. And I didn't see Labor doing that this mm. time. Yeah. How connected are you still to the Labor Party? Obviously, you've got a, an incredible history. I mean, you were a, you were the first ever female Premier. That's uh, right. You know, Labor or, or Liberal uh, in, in this country. Um, how, how connected are you still uh, 
uh, to the party and to politics generally. Really only with the, the local members in Fremantle and yeah. some individual candidates. Uh, you know, I'm keen to um, lobby my former colleagues, particularly here in Western Australia, around environmental issues. But I took the view once I left politics that there's nothing worse than having former politicians <laughs> breathing down your neck. Um, I know some people stay engaged, but I've chosen the route of working with community groups, particularly in the environment, but also in areas like human rights where I, I'm, I'm still engaged. So I, mm. I do a lot of community-based work rather than working within the Labor Party. There are plenty of good people doing that. You spent uh, more than two decades in politics, mm-hmm. uh, which is obviously a fair chunk of your your professional life. Indeed. Um, the way that politics ran itself back then uh, in terms of the pressure on you, in terms of the, the, the standard of candidates, the standard of dialogue, um, do you see vast differences between your time in politics and what we currently have? Look, I think it's always it's always been a tough game and people tend to romanticise the past and become nostalgic for things that never were. But I'd have to say that the speed of politics and the social media have both had an impact. I mean, they are mutually reinforcing. Mm. And so whenever there's something nasty said or a message... Um, transmitted that's not entirely accurate, that tends to go a lot faster and a lot nastier. Um, so I would find it difficult, I think, today to uh, work in politics because of that, because my temperament is not suited to that really rapid pace. I think it's destructive. I'm an advocate of what I describe as slow politics, that you really need to think things through, to work out an agenda, to be thoughtful and careful about it. But unfortunately, current uh, momentum is such that it would take, I think, a lot more resistance and resilience than that. I think I would find it extremely difficult. Is that why we don't see so many of those big projects, those big long-term ideas that are going to take one, two, maybe more terms of government to achieve? I think so. I mean, it's not that people don't understand the importance of some of these changes, but they're really fearful. Mm. Um, And this last election campaign will just reinforce that. The idea that you can't put forward, you know, what are um, essentially nationwide, nation building, nation changing policies for fear that you're going to be struck down. You know, the, the, you know, the machetes will be kind of yeah. out there trying to lop off your political head, and yeah. that makes people fearful and timid. That's been happening for some time, I yeah. have to say. Yeah. It's been a trend in politics, um, and Bob Hawke's going reminded us that maybe it's since then, really, that we've yeah. seen such a response. I laugh every time someone <laughs> suggests the high-speed rail over in the Eastern yeah. States. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No. They haven't been watching Utopia. <laughs> <laughs> it's been on the cards for uh, forever. <laughs> 30, 40 years. Exactly. It's never going to happen, exactly. is it? Let's go back. Let's just leave politics to one side. Of course, we will come back to it. How can we not? But uh, t- talk about your, your early days, You know some of your early childhood memories, because you were born... Uh, you're a country girl, yep. essentially. Yep. Um, where was home for you as a, as a youngster? Well, I grew up in a place called Gutha, which is near Murrawar in the northern wheat belt. My dad was a wheat farmer and my mum was his partner in business. Um, they went up there just before I was born. In uh, I was born 48. They went up there in 47. Um, they didn't have a lot, it has to be said. Two kids, the third on the way. And the mythology is that they had a, a suitcase full of their clothes and that was it, 50 right. pounds. But Dad got uh, a war service land settlement grant. Um, yep. He was a, you know, one of those people who really did benefit post-war from that. He and my mother both had farming backgrounds, which is why they were selected. And I grew up the first few years of my life um, in, I would have to say, relative poverty, but mm. completely unaware of it um, mm. as my parents built the farm up. 
And being good Catholics, they decided that we should all go away to boarding school. And I went to boarding school at the age of six. So my other home, in inverted commas. <laughs> How far away was boarding school? I was 80. Um, how far is Dongra? Yeah, about 100 odd k's away. Decent drive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, I mean, they came as often as they could, but mostly it was just when we went home for holidays. I, they were really unhappy with that, so they actively um, collaborated with neighbours and built a little Catholic school so that I went back to that for a few years. Right. But, but I spent most of my education in boarding schools. So from the age of, age of six, really, you'd only see mum and dad, what, at school holiday yeah, times? Yeah, Easter and school holidays. Wow. But I, no, I came back home at seven, eight, nine. Mm. That's when they'd built the school. So I had the experience yeah. of school bus and yeah. living in the bush and, you know, living on a, a, a farm with a growing number of siblings. We were in the end seven children. Yes. Um, six girls and a boy, I believe. That's right, yeah. yeah. And taking part in the local communities and understanding. I mean, the thing that... I really, I guess, stamped my life was that both my parents were very active in the local community. But that wasn't unusual. You know, in order to survive in those small uh, rural towns, you had to, and communities, you had to roll up your sleeves and do things. There was no they who was going to come and rescue you. So if you wanted a clubhouse for the, the sporting um, clubs, you built it yourself. Yeah. You didn't get any money from anywhere else, maybe a little from the local shire, maybe a, a grant of land if you were lucky. But you really had to do it yourself. And that sort of um, self-reliance, I think, is something that I learned early on, reinforced by being in boarding school where, in a sense, you know, you had to to cope and and manage your own life. Yeah. Uh, Looking back, um, obviously you were drawn to to public life and and serving Mm -hmm. the community. Um, Do you you see now in hindsight uh, where those seeds took hold? I've always Uh, been very aware of that. As a youngster? Yeah. My my dad was uh, on the local roads board, as they were then called. Uh, He was a ward representative and then he was the the president um, of the roads board and then the shire. And he and my mother were both very active in local sporting and church communities. They were active in the local church. They raised money. They built the little school, as I've said. Uh, they were, um, you know, presidents and secretaries and office holders in all sorts of local organisations. But as I say, that in a sense wasn't unusual. And I guess what I learned from them was the, the, the need to participate mm. and the need to collaborate with people from all stripes. I mean, what I, I've i never been one of those people who thought that the Conservatives were evil. You know, there are some people on the left of politics who tend to construct their political opponents as yeah. the enemy. Whereas they were my father and yeah. my friends, you know, these were people that I grew up with. Yeah. Uh, what was it like in a in a group of uh, seven kids? Where, where were you in the pecking order there? I was number three. Yes. You were number three, yes, right in the yeah. middle. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, a busy household then, I imagine. It was, although we were scattered to the four winds, really, you know, when, once we were away at boarding school. So my older brother and sister did too, and my younger sisters in time. Um, so school holidays were always the <laughs> the testing ground. Yeah. And my brother doesn't like me telling this story, but, you know, he went away to boarding school and was rather accustomed to having things done for him. <laughs> and he, I remember him standing at the, the door of the his bedroom one day and shouting down the, the corridor, where are my socks? And he got several <laughs> females shouting back at him, find your own socks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, in your later years of, of, of school, uh, it was down in Perth. Am mm-hmm. I right? At, That's at, right. At yes. Santa Maria. Santa Maria, the last two years, yes. What was it like coming down to the to the city for you then as a, well, heading into your early teenage years? Um, I mean, it's an interesting story because at, at Tongra, it was a small school. Um, the, the nuns there were semi-enclosed. Once they went inside the convent part of the school, um, they didn't speak really. Um, mm. And we didn't either in the morning. You know, we got out of bed and we went to church 
and stood in queues waiting to go into breakfast. And it wasn't until we sat down at breakfast that we were allowed to speak, although, of course, that rule was broken <laughs> a fair bit, as you can imagine, with little kids. So that was a, a very ordered existence. But the nuns themselves were very warm. They were kind of raw-boned Irish girls who'd been yep. extruded, many of them, from their own country and arrived here, often without qualifications. Frankly, some of the teaching was pretty appalling. Uh, but they were well-intentioned. Um, Santa Maria was a... Uh, a different kind of school. Mm. Um, I've, I've said to them before, amongst other things, uh, when I went back there, you really did teach me how to rely on myself for my education <laughs> because some of the teaching at that stage, we're talking here, the early 60s, was pretty inferior. There were yeah. one or two good teachers, but some of them were really bad. And I really taught myself Italian and biology in order to get through the, mm. uh, the, the end of the year exams, the school exit exams. So... You know, that was one of the reasons why a lot of people argued for improved funding of Catholic schools because yeah. they really couldn't provide the breadth of education that was expected even in the 60s. Mm. Well, obviously, you uh, you did pretty pretty darn well there. Yeah, self-reliant, <laughs> <laughs> self-taught. Drew on your own resources there and um, and, and benefited yes. from that. So I'm, I'm keen to talk about what happened after, uh, but we do need to get to a break. This is Inspiring Stories, thanks to Baron O'Day. Uh, with our special guest in this episode, Dr. Cameron Lawrence, back with more soon. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, in this episode, we're speaking to uh, WA former Premier and also uh, Federal uh, politician. She served as a minister uh, in the Keating government, among many other things, Dr. Carmen Lawrence. Uh, Carmen, we've, we've sort of finished with your school days uh, and you, you, know, you talked about having to be resilient and, and basically teach yourself. What then drew you to the field of, of psychology at university? Because that was uh, yeah. what you did next at UWA. Well, I was very naive um, coming, I was 16 Apart from anything else, the nuns had jumped me up a class at some right. point, so I started university very young. And as I was indicating, I mean, I did have some good teachers. I don't want to overstate my case, but I, I hadn't really got a sense of what was required, you know, uh, what what the standards might be. So when I went to UWA, which was the only university, of course, at the time, we used to call it the university, Yeah. Um, I just looked around for things that I had sort of had an interest in and was reasonably good at. I'd done well in economics at school. Um, psychology interested me. Uh, biology, Italian, these were things that I'd spent a lot of time, as I say, uh, learning um, from materials that I'd assembled myself. So that that was where I, I headed. And I was originally, I think, going to do economics, and I've sustained a strong interest in it ever since. I did well in it. I did well in it in first year at uni, and that's where I was headed. Then I got to second year, and they were in the middle of just changing from what I would call descriptive economics, which mm. was, you know, uh, included history and s social structures and so on toward the uh, microeconomic theory that we're now all familiar with and the algebra, which I could manage, but I just hated the approach. The assumptions around the models that they built of the economy mm. just violated every common sense principle that I'd ever um, encountered. And certainly psychology being the other discipline I studied, studied I looked at this and thought, I can't do that for the rest of my <laughs> life. <laughs> and psychology was more interesting uh, because it, although it made lots of weird assumptions too, the behaviourists were in ascendancy, at least there was some suggestion that you did have to watch and see what people actually did yeah. before you reach conclusions about what they were likely to do next. And, and 
also probably good training for the world of politics, which we'll get to in a, in a yes, bit. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, obviously, you're you know you're, you're back at UWA now, mm-hmm. but what was UWA like in the in the sixties? Well, mean, it was a very not, small. Not being place. around then, I kind of have this romanticised yeah. idea of what the sixties were like. But yeah. uh, being on the campus at UWA, the it, uni as it was, yeah. so what what was the vibe like? Well, it was a very small, intimate place. I was yeah. at St Catherine's College. Um, my parents weren't keen for me to be thrown let loose on the world at the age of sixteen, so I went there. It was like an extension of the boarding school yeah. in a way, with some additional freedoms. Um, and on the campus, you could get to know people from other disciplines easily. Um, and, and obviously being in a residential college helped that because I, so I got to meet people from medicine and, and not from engineering really because not many girls did that, but uh, from law, from science, you know. So it was a broader scope. I think today a lot of young people are much more constrained than we were. And I think the sense of it being home, I, I, I look at uh, some of the approval ratings now of universities around the country and it's pretty clear that the small ones always rank near the top because mm. people do like that sense of being part of a, a broader community but not so big that they're kind of rendered anonymous by it. And that's the problem with all the big universities now. The, the students are not on campus. They do it all online or yep. most of it. They don't get to meet people very much, let alone their lecturers. We knew our lecturers. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Socialising was... Yeah, and we socialised with them too, yeah. yeah. And we socialised with people across age groups and, uh, you know, sometimes it probably got a bit untidy, but we did, in a sense... That's a word for it. (laughs) We did, in a sense, um, get stimulated by a range of people with different kinds of views about the world. Yeah. Um, Is is that where you first became really politically active? Because they could have... Glancing back on my own uni days, um, certainly that's where quite a few of my peers got a real passion for for causes and for and for politics and have have nurtured it ever since and gone into that world is that where it started for you well probably not so much in my undergraduate degree i i was like my parents um a participant so i was the president of the newman society which was the catholic society on campus for a little while until i decided that i was no longer a believer rather spectacularly in the eyes of some of my friends yeah um and i was also the uh, i was involved in st catherine's itself being a so-called senior student there so politically in the small p sense of yep. participation and it wasn't really until the late 60s once i'd finished my degree and i'd gone overseas and i was watching what was happening in 68 69 the anti-Vietnam movement, the um, so-called second wave feminism, some really serious questioning of the way uh, our olders and betters in inverted commas had constructed the world, that I became politically active. Mm. One of the things that uh, that you you did there, and, and I'm sure you'll have more to tell on this story, is that uh, you, you lobbied successfully to have the campus beauty contest well, I don't know. Abolished. We we lobbied so much as we just uh, we we assembled ourselves on the day that the um, Miss University contest finals were being held and just marched with placards all the way down Winthrop Hall. Yeah. Um, obviously, at the same time, people were shouting and yelling at us because, you know, I'm no beauty. And that I guess there was a sense that this might be envy writ large, but really we were saying university has no place judging women on the basis of their appearance, you know, like a Miss Universe contest. And it was always under the guise of, well, it wasn't just about the beauty. It was also about their contribution. And some very famous women stuck their hands up for those. Is that right? I must say, I wasn't aware that there was a a beauty contest on uh, campus. until Each of the faculties had had their own representatives and they were all paraded off. Not, you know, not wearing 
bikinis as the sort of, if you like, the universe, Miss Universe, Miss World sort of contest. But nonetheless, it was clearly yeah. about their It was appearance. a beauty pageant. Yeah. 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 All right. So you've then gone into a, a professional role mm-hmm. uh, at EWA. Mm-hmm. Well, before that, I worked for the public service for a bit, yes. Right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, leaving that behind and going into mm-hmm. politics, uh-huh. what, what, what flicked the switch for you? Well, I got I, I I traveled around the country a bit. I worked at the University of New South Wales and Melbourne University before coming back here and working in the public service. And I was interested in politics, obviously, by then, and very concerned about what I saw as a, a thin agenda to try and remedy some of the inequalities in Australian society, particularly the position of women, but also the position of Indigenous Australians. You know, it, like many people, worried about the fact that we tended to ignore that. Um, so I was, I guess, convinced that you know, activism was one way of going about it, and I was active in the anti-Vietnam and, and the women's movement, helped set up women's electoral lobby in Melbourne, but I ultimately decided that maybe I needed to be on the other side of the desk, so I got involved in the Labor Party, worked my way through the various branches, with no eye to the future, really. You know, the Subiaco branch was an active interesting place to be and the electorate councils then fed into the state executive and I eventually ended up on the so-called administrative committee and from there people said to me well why don't you think about standing for a seat so Mm. it was a sort of natural evolution rather than a a long-standing ambition it was really being there I suppose and taking part it was a pretty colorful time in WA politics though it was indeed (laughs) of course wasn't it some big characters yes it was uh, some massive controversies Uh, and you were right in the yeah. thick of it. Yes, that's right. For a lot of it. I mean, 1986, um, you know, when you successfully won uh, Subiaco. Uh, I mean, just look at some of your uh, your colleagues there. I mean, and obviously, we don't have time to go into, into all of it. But, uh, you know, you've you've come after Brian Burke, Peter, Peter Dowding, mm-hmm. WA Inc. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. that's all going on around you. Yes. Um, how do you reflect on that time now? Well, it didn't seem unusual at the time. That's the thing, <laughs> that's the thing about when you're in a place, you know, that's, that becomes the normal uh, state of affairs. I mean, I could see what was wrong with it and what needed to change, I think. But I came in, uh, speaking of colourful characters in 1986, I had previously stood for an unwinnable seat. You know, you have to show your willingness to, to mm. do the hard yakka. But in Subiaco, of course, a man called Tom Dador, who'd famously fallen out with Richard Court, was my predecessor. And he was a really colourful character, let me tell you. I mean, and he ended up endorsing me, a Liberal endorsing a Labour person for the seat. So there were all sorts of unusual yeah. aspects to my entry into politics. In in the event, I mean, I was a backbencher when Burke was um, Premier and didn't enter the ministry until he'd gone. I was under doubting. So I didn't see him, in a sense, up close and personal as a leader you know, within the Cabinet. I saw the way he led the Parliament uh, as a backbencher. And a lot of the things that subsequently came to light were not obvious to most of us then. You know, There were yeah. obviously rumblings and there was concern about how close he was to business and so on. But the, the full extent of it, I think, was not clear to most people, even, even those who were his critics, I think, in the end were yeah. somewhat surprised by it. Yeah. Uh, taking the reins, though, uh, mm-hmm. of, the, of the party and, and the state, yep. uh, you succeeded uh, Peter Dowding. How, yes. how, how bloody was that? Uh, well, people sometimes said to me about Julia Gillard, you know, this this was a horrible thing. And I had to say, well, you know, <laughs> something similar happened here in Western Australia all those years ago. The real concern that my cabinet colleagues had, and there have been lots of stories written about this and some are more or less accurate than others, but the concern was that he wasn't, uh, Peter Darding 
wasn't apparently able to pull us out of that very deep hole that Dirk uh, that Burke had dug. The relationship, you know, with the business people, the um, very significant problems that came to be known as WA Inc. Mm. Downing was uh, was not enthusiastic about any of that, and I feel for him. The day he got into office, there would have been, in a sense, a purple mm. folder on his desk that was was full of the problems, but. Uh, in the cabinet, we couldn't see that we were solving the problem. It seemed to be getting worse. Um, every move that was made seemed to, in a sense, as I say, dig the hole deeper rather than extricating itself, mm. ourselves from it. We needed to draw a very, you know, deliberate line in the sand. So, yes, mm. it was hard for a lot of people, including, well, especially Peter Downing. Mm. Um, but the judgment was made by his colleagues that um, for whatever reason he wasn't going to be able to make that yeah, deliberate cut from the past. I mean, there were so many headlines. It was it was mm. relentless, wasn't it? It for, was for yeah. what two or three years. That's right. Um, up to and then including and then going on from you. Yeah, that's right. Calling a royal commission into yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that seemed to be the only way in the end, and my cabinet colleagues obviously agreed with that. It was you know obviously strongly argued on both sides, but in the end, the decision was made to set it up to fund it properly, uh, to put people of considerable prestige in charge of the uh, the actual event um, and to, you know, carry on with government if we mm. could in the face of that, which proved to be quite difficult, of course. Um, of course, a lot of people know you as um, uh, not only um, Premier of, of WA, but at the time you were the first ever yes. female Premier in Australia. That's right. Um, it's it's quite, a, quite a title, quite an accolade to, to hold. Um, in terms of your your life and your achievements and and, and all of that you've, that you've done, how does that sit? Well, obviously, it was a very considerable honour that that my colleagues should have seen that you know I was maybe what was needed at the time, and clearly, and I'm not naive about this, being a woman was one way of signalling a very substantial change. Mm. It was a change of direction that Australia hadn't seen at a state level before, although there'd been territory leaders, obviously. Yep. Um, so that was a way of signalling. But I say to people that wouldn't have been enough if they hadn't regarded me as competent. So the, again, the the um, estimation of my peers was important there, and yep. I regarded my role as, in a sense, saving the family silver. Uh, you know, I wasn't again naive enough to think that it was an automatic um, outcome that we would win the next election, especially given the WA Inc. Uh, issues. But that labour should be sustained through that; that it shouldn't be destroyed by that process. And there was an outside chance of us winning, you know, until uh, Richard Court took over, we were actually ahead in the polls. Mm. So, you know, we, we nearly brought off the unwinnable election in that mm. case. Yeah. yeah, talking of unwinnable elections. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we seem to be talking about that uh, more and more these days. Uh, we need to take a break. Dr. Carmen Lawrence is our special guest on Inspiring Stories. Back with more soon. You're listening to another Inspiring Story, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882-6PR, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories, uh, brought to you by Barra and O'Day, and uh, we're hearing the inspiring story of Dr. Carmen Lawrence. Carmen, can I just um, again revisit uh, your time uh, as the state leader? Um, Obviously, (laughs) WA's issues go... Um, they don't get much bigger mm. in, in WA's history. And, uh, you know, rightly so, there were $600 million-odd of, uh, of public funds uh, to be uh, accounted for. But some of the other big issues that you had to, to deal with, juvenile crime, uh, I think, was a big one, wasn't yes. it? And, and largely 
uh, media driven and I suppose as well in terms of infrastructure and 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 something that you know we're still talking about now yes. um the June Light rail line mm-hmm. was another big one too. That's right. Looking back for you, are they two of the big ones for you as well? Well, they are. I mean, you might remember, or perhaps you don't given your age, but at the time uh, we were in the middle of a big international recession and West Australia at the bottom of a mining boom cycle. Um, so unemployment got to 11% in West mm. Australia. So that was a very serious concern. And obviously the construction of the uh, rail line um, in, my predecessors had reopened the the uh, Fremantle line, which was very important, and electrified the whole existing system. So the Joondalup extension was, in a sense, a logical uh, outcome of all of that. So that it wasn't just me; it was the Labor yeah. um, agenda that had really pushed that forward. And it was completed during my time. Very important, and I think continues to be important as mm. we see uh, in this uh, city. But at the time, it was partly an economic measure to try and improve employment. We put a lot of money, too, into what's now called social housing, Homes West, building a whole lot of uh, additional housing, something that really hasn't happened since. It uh, was very important for, re- for reducing um, the pressure on people on low incomes, but also, again, providing opportunities for employment in the building sector. So th- the unemployment was a very big issue. State governments can do much less about it than they claim, and national governments can't do that much either, frankly, with big international forces. But you can do some things. So that sort of counter-cyclical investment was very important. Mm. Um, and those uh, questions of crime, they really were beaten up. It was really quite shocking that uh, we were led to believe that crime was increasing in Western Australia when in reality it was not. Mm. And those major crimes have been on hold for a very long time in most parts of Australia. But that whole law and order monster that was created, um, you know, probably sells things to uh, make people very afraid. And it's probably why I wrote a little book subsequently called Fear in Politics because mm. I saw how people were manipulated to conclude that there was much more crime around than there was. And we know from a lot of research, unfortunately, that people always overestimate the amount of crime and the likelihood that they're going to be victims, but particularly in a climate where it's being beaten up. Yep. So, yes, I mean, uh, we, we didn't handle that well collectively. But on the other hand, it was very difficult in the face of you know, yeah. relentless media campaigns. Yeah, I, I think at the, at the time there, there'd been a spate of um, of deaths involved. Yeah, there were, and they uh, were very serious. Repeats, and nobody uh, wanted driving to. offenders, and that's yeah. right. No yeah. one wanted to underestimate the significance of that. But uh, increasing the the penalties and uh, ramping up the rhetoric wasn't going to solve those problems. Those solve they're structural problems. When you get repeat offenders amongst a particular group of people, you have to ask why. Mm. Uh, and and simply having um, harsher penalties isn't going to solve the problem. Yeah. You have to look at the structural problems. Yeah. I suppose one of the other issues, and I don't want to dwell on this for too long, but one of the issues that uh, that, that took a long, long time, you know, from from the start of this saga to mm. uh, to your eventual acquittal, the mm. Penny Easton mm-hmm. affair. How much did that affect your uh, your your later years in politics? Because it was an incredibly you know, emotive and tragic situation, yes, it wasn't was. it? I mean, it was uh, obviously devastating uh, for Penny Easton, whose whose life uh, was lost. She took mm. her life. Um, but for me, you know, being in some senses, well, not in some senses, held responsible for that yeah. uh, in the most extraordinary kind of rewriting of a person's life um, was extremely painful, probably more for my family in a way than for me because I knew that in the eye of a political storm, you're the one who has to manage and deal with that. It's the people around you who don't have any 
capacity to respond to it that often feel the uh, impact. So yes, it was it was an awful period in my life, and you know, being being before a royal commission and then uh, a trial, um, it takes it takes its toll. Um, but I guess that early upbringing of my family and the fact that there were so many people supporting me, you know, very generous people, both financially and emotionally, meant that I could come through that um, and not revisit it. You know, I really, honestly, really. Uh, go back over that. Um, mm. It's not that I was unconscious of some of the, the very big questions it raised, but I saw too many people in my political life, you know, people who came to my electorate office um, who had lost family or who'd worked in places where injustices had been done to them, mm. and they wore tracks in their heads by and then were embittered by going back over and over it. And I yep. swore that I would never do that. Yeah. Uh, instead, you uh, well, you, you spent a fair bit of time uh, in Canberra, yes, um, serving uh, as a minister for Paul Keating, uh, no less. What was he like uh, as a leader? I mean, obviously, you were you were very close to him, you know, yeah. in terms of the team. Yeah, he uh, set up. What, what was he like as a as a boss, essentially? Well, he was he was a very I think he was a very good cabinet chair, um, and he he let his ministers um, show their stuff. He didn't interfere in the daily running of portfolios. He was very supportive of me, obviously, during that Royal Commission. Mm. Some would say to the point of it being a fault that he should have kind of cut me loose. Um, but he was determined not to do that. But as a leader um, and as someone who could guide the Cabinet, I thought he was um, a, an excellent chair, having been in that role myself. Some people say he wasn't as good as Bob Hawke, but I never saw Bob, so I couldn't make that comparison. And Paul was very supportive of his uh, colleagues. Um, mm. He could be tough. I saw him rip strips off a few people. But he was unfailingly funny. I mean, yeah. he's a really um, – it was wonderful to go I mean, to cabinet he, he, just to hear him. <laughs> so famous for his, his turns of phrase yeah. and the way he can he can cut someone down. Can I ask, yeah. were you ever on the receiving end? No, I wasn't. No? no? no you must have seen some zingers I, I in your time, though. And, and at some level, you know, that can be cruel too. So yeah. one of the things I don't like about politics is that capacity to uh, destroy other people, um, whether it's done with wit or a savage assault. Yeah. Um, but – on the other hand, he could be very funny. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear you went on the receiving. No. <laughs> you wouldn't forget now. No, that's right. Uh, I can imagine. We need to take uh, another break. Dr. Carmen Lawrence is our special guest. We're going to hear more about uh, what you've been up to uh, since leaving uh, the political arena right after this break. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882-6PR, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories, uh, and we are speaking to uh, Dr. Carmen Lawrence. Uh, we're, we're having to gloss over a lot that uh, happened during your time uh, in federal politics, but there's still so much to get through. But uh, uh, let's go to 2007. You've obviously made the decision not to contest that uh-huh. uh, 2007. You were, uh, at the time, the member for Fremantle. Um, was that an easy decision to, to leave that world and, and come back and, and start something else? Yeah, it was really. I've always thought of representative politics as just that. It's not a lifelong career. Um, and I'd said to myself when I first got into state politics that 10 years would be enough. And then, I, you know, Keating <laughs> rang me up and I served another 10 effectively. How did that phone call go, can I ask? Well, um, he was very keen uh, after John Dawkins left um, and he thought that, you know, that I would make a contribution. So... I was obviously willing to listen. We were in opposition at that stage in West Australia. Did he, did he need to make much of a sales pitch to you? A little, because the idea of travelling backwards and forwards across yeah. the country for a West Australian is always a little, you know, mm. 
off-putting, but no, not really. Um, I decided as a former Premier that I would take the party through as leader of the opposition to the next leader. Yeah. I didn't see myself coming back as Premier of Western Australia. Uh, that might have been wrong, I don't know. Uh, but So I saw this was another opportunity to, to serve. But after 20, 21 years in politics altogether, I thought that was enough. I could see that it was very likely that Rudd was going to win the next election. And frankly, I'm not sure that I could have worked with him. So, right. So it you was partly be the a decision. First to say that. <laughs> part, it was partly a decision based on the fact that I thought Labor yeah. was secure, but also that I I didn't see myself as part of a yeah. team that could work. Uh, can, constructively I, can I ask with you him. why? Look, just, it's a, just personality a personality thing. thing yeah, yep. yeah, basically. And I I thought that you know he was um, pragmatic to a fault, and that we needed something more than that. So you know I didn't. I had parted company with the party on asylum seeker issues as well. Mm-hmm. I couldn't see that changing. Um, in fact, you know what happened subsequently was that it got worse. And there were a number of other issues, um, including environmental ones, where I was very concerned that we were heading in the wrong direction. So yep. I guess it was, uh, all those things added up, and it was time anyway for someone else yep. to make their contribution. And, yep. of course, they have. Uh, so... You've come back to UWA then, Yes, essentially. You've taken up a, a role there uh, at UWA, um, really looking at uh, a research role, the origins of fanaticism, which I, I must say I find fascinating. Well, I started off doing that because, if you remember, there was a, you know, a huge amount of talk around terrorism and the, you know, what with the bombings in Bali and yep. 9-11 and so on. And, and the, I guess concern around the question of you know, how had this happened, where mm. had it come from. And as a psychologist, I'd always been interested in that question um, about extreme views and extreme positions. So I continued to do some work on that, but mainly look, looking at prejudice and discrimination and working with students on various questions surrounding um, you know, how those things are expressed. It, it would have taken a very different kind of research uh, program to get seriously into fanaticism. And in the end, I didn't really go there. I, I did a lot more work on environment and conservation where I felt yeah. that I could actually make a contribution. And most of the work I've done is on those two questions. Yeah. What did you learn about fanaticism? Well, I, at one level, there's always uh, the possibility that uh, the most ordinary people get drawn into it. And uh, what I saw, and I taught this with students as well, uh, was that in the past, and there's always been plenty of fanaticism around and there still is today, um, people get drawn in through very prosaic means, family, friends, um, and they often come out from a background that's relatively privileged. It's not the the least well off necessarily, as we've seen mm. with some of the you know some of them are, are clearly people who are um, disadvantaged in their communities, but many of them are not. And there's a sense of wounded identity that some part of them they feel some part of themselves has been disrespected in a very serious way, and they're offered these violent uh, alternatives. So left or right, um, you know, Muslim or Christian, some of the same uh, processes are at work, but the actual links that draw people into fanaticism are often, as I say, those very prosaic ones of the yeah. immediate community and family. Yeah, yeah. As, we're, as we're finding out more and more, yes. uh, the profiles are, uh, are not fitting into those very neat, orderly descriptors yeah. that we've That's right. I mean, in places formed like, in our mind. Places like uh, France, for instance, it's very clear that a lot of the, the very serious extremism there takes a part on, by people who have come from petty criminal backgrounds yeah. that spent time in jail. Yeah. Mm. So it varies, too, from place to place. Yeah. Do you feel like you're uh, contributing as much or just in a different way now, given your role in academia, but still kind of uh, feeding into some of those issues that also intersect with 
with politics. Do you feel like you're you're making as as big a contribution? If I can, you know, ask you to sort of rank well, them in that way. It's very it's very hard, I think, to say because yeah. in politics you can only do as much as, in a sense, the community will want to be done, as we've yeah. just seen in the most recent election. Mm. So um, establishing a well-educated community who understands the issues, um, pressuring those points where it would seem that change is necessary for us to lead a decent life, that's where activists and lobbyists and teachers and educators can have an impact. Yeah. And so you know, I, I'd, I'd lost an appetite for being on the front line, if you like, and I'm more interested, I suppose, in... in uh, changing people's approaches to these issues in ways that respect the evidence and respect human beings. One of the things I think I'm most deeply uh, concerned about is the polarisation that we are now seeing in Australia, the pulling apart, the the denigration of people who are your political opponents from an early age and increasingly as I age, I think that is uh, a very destructive way. Mm. Um, And we're seeing it globally, you know, the the Trump view of the world that you're kind of either with him or you're against him, that's very dangerous. And it leads often to extreme positions politically. Yeah. Um, so if I can get people to think sceptically, not cynically, but sceptically, and look at things um, through a, the lens of the well-being of everybody rather than their immediate self-interest, then it's worth trying to do that. Which must be so tough now given, you know, the... The term post-truth, it's, fairly a, it's a fairly new term, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but, you know, everything can is so readily written off as that's fake news or, you know, that's rubbish, that's agenda-driven yeah. news, whatever, however you want to describe it. Yeah. Um, that must make your it's harder. job harder. But g- getting people to listen, I think, is important. So if someone's telling you the way they see the world, don't write them off yeah. as idiots. Try and figure out why it is they think that way. I mean, why do climate deniers think the way they do? Mm. Uh, what is it about the, their worldview that leads them to that position? And, and is it modifiable? Maybe it's not. And if it's not, you don't bang your head against that particular brick wall. You try mm. and convince those who are uncertain or, you know, wobbling a bit in their position um, uh, to to look at the evidence. So yeah. it's it is hard. I, I'm I'm always impressed by educators. <laughs> <laughs> What what's left on your uh, your list uh, of achievements uh, to to tick off um, in in the years to come? Then, Carl. Uh, look, I I don't think of it that way. I'm I'm very, as I say, committed to trying to do something about our environment. I'm involved in a, a local group down near Margaret River where I'm privileged to have a, a bush block, which nearly got burnt down <laughs> recently. I'm organising a conference on prescribed burning as it happens to try and have a look at the impact on us and on biodiversity. Climate change is obviously critical. So I, I think the you know us doing more to protect our environment, including in the city, I'm doing some work at the moment on the effect of place on children's development. Yep. So these are all things that I think deserve our attention front and centre. It's, it's, it's really interesting talking to you about, uh, you know, covering several decades mm-hmm. uh, of your professional life and how many of the issues that were important then we're, we're still talking about still grappling as, as though they're hugely unresolved. Yes, well, I think they are by and large. You know, the, the way we the way we live our lives, in a sense, is the problem. Uh, we consume too much. We waste too much. Our governments aren't alert to that. We haven't thought through some of the long term consequences of the way we do things today. So that long term view, I think, is something that really we need to cultivate. Maybe you need one last stint in politics, Carla. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I think once is enough. <laughs> that is a resounding no. And we'll leave it there. Dr. Carmen Lawrence, thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure. And sharing your story with us. I really appreciate it.
You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Everyone has a story to tell. This one is brought to you by Bower and O'Day. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA inspiring story. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.